0: Hello and welcome to All Stats Aren't We, a podcast in which Leeds fans cast the combined eye over goings on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm John McKenzie, the Pat Bamford laser finisher of the podcast. This is Becoming a Habit. And I'm joined by the Rafinha free kick of the podcast, Tom Woodhead. Life is great, eh? And finally, the Stuart Dallas toe poke of the podcast. It doesn't matter how it goes in, it only matters that it goes in. It's Tom Alderson. Tom, how you doing? I'm I'm very well
2: thank you. Um I'm I'm pretty glad that um well since I've learned what the word ameliorate meant last <laughs> week I feel like it's been in my life a lot and I feel like it's going to be used a lot today.
0: <laughs> yeah I think it was Darren who described ameliorate as a bit of a disease because like once you have it in your head you just end up using it in completely bizarre circumstances. So I don't know if that's been the case for you if you've been like hunting for a word and and throwing it out there.
2: My vocabulary is terrible. So whenever I learn a new word that sounds, makes me sound a little bit clever, I tend to throw it in wherever I can.
0: <laughs> well, a man who has been using ameliorate for years, much, <laughs> much earlier than he met me, much to his chagrin when <laughs> Josh Hobbs suggested otherwise, is uh, Tom Woodhead. Tom Woodhead, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm
3: fine. It was actually the first word I ever said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I was under the impression that it was a word you invented, actually. But No, no, no. How are you feeling?
3: yeah I'm not too bad yeah uh, it was it was nice to get that win yesterday um mm. and halt the 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 naysayers the doom mongers the people who um every time we lose a couple of games think we're suddenly shit again so yeah it was good
0: we are in very much a cycle aren't we of of one extreme to another so I think we're currently in a we're definitely getting europe. Um, phase of the cycle, and no doubt next week we will be back into the. We may be getting relegated phase of the cycle. But well, hopefully, we are getting past that now. I think thirty-five points is. Is you have to be a real doom monger to think that we're going to get relegated from here. But but there we are. Right, let's begin as we always do with the age-old question: How did that feel, Tom Woodhead? How did that feel
3: in the first half? It felt very stressful because we were getting pressed very well um at the back, and it was all feeling a little bit Barnsley and uh you know the, the commentators pointed out a couple of times you know that Southampton had eight players in our half and they were they were really crowding us out and that made things very difficult but then obviously um, you know ring the giant game, sca- game state bell we scored early in the second half much to the surprise of whoever was operating you know whoever was directing the tv coverage and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah I mean, I mean after that it, it completely changed the game didn't it because all the space opened up Southampton had to start going for it a bit more and it, it, it really changed everything
0: it really does have to go down as one of the worst pieces of of directorial approaches to football in in recent times i i, I was actually quite annoyed in many respects not least <laughs> yeah, because was. it wasn't even <laughs> like it wasn't even like we just scored really quick i mean it was quite quick but there was plenty of time for them to not show a replay of, of what was going on and show us what was actually happening on the pitch and we only really got the the very final bit of it so really bad form from sky tv
3: at least for this one we did actually get to see it on a replay whereas I remember there was a goal last season where Ben White played a lovely assist Um, I'm not I can't remember exactly who for but even on the replay they didn't have a proper angle of that one so you know at least we're in the Premier League now and all these cameras are available yeah Tom Alderson
0: I'm aware that we have the two Toms on so please bear with me as my brain fails to cope with it but Tom Alderson how did that feel? It felt
2: the second half was, was lovely. I feel obviously scoring early in that second half is going to make life a lot easier, and it was pre- pretty comfortable, really. Um, I didn't feel like they were ever going to cause us problems in that second half. But the first half was um, it, we just saw all the sort of problems that you you guys mentioned on the preview, and uh, we've been talking about for weeks like they, they caused us problems at set pieces, they pressed us high, um, and it was. But it, Again, it's like we always say with the game state, Like if you, you score in the second minute, it's always going to make that second half much easier. It would have been really interesting actually to see what would have happened if it had got to 60 minutes and would have still been 0-0.
0: Yeah. And I think the game was actually quite close because even though it was a three nil win, I think the second game comes around, I'm not entirely sure, but the 78th minute, I think some, something like that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was actually a lot later than I, than I remember actually looking back at it. I was kind of like, Oh yeah. You know, we sort of scored a goal early on and then got a couple of goals soon after, but they did, they did keep it really tight for a good long stretch of that second half. And I thought we, we kept it nice and, nice and tight. Let's go into the questions. As always, the proviso is that we did have absolutely loads of questions, so we haven't been able to get to all of them. And I should also say this is a double header episode, so we'll be talking about Aston Villa as well. So we don't have all the time in the world to play with, so sorry about that. But. <clears throat> Let's jump into the questions that we do have. A um, couple of general questions to start off with. Loop says under Bielsa, we've had less than fifty percent possession, only six times. We've won all six, scoring thirteen and conceding one. Why is this? Who wants to jump in with this? Tom Alderson, any thoughts on this?
2: I just think that we we are a team pretty suited to playing not not on the break, but not we don't always have to be have complete control of the possession. We're not. It's not like you think. Almost like Man City, who it's like their natural play is always to, because they've got better players, to um, to have possession of the opponent's half. We're quite happy just sort of bypassing the build-up and passing it. Either, um, either long to Raf- um, Rafinha and Costa, which we saw quite a lot in the second half, and that worked really well. Or just completely sort of bypassing the build-up and s- switching it a lot, which I think was really effective in beating Southampton's press.
3: I think, you know, if Bielsa had his way he doesn't. I don't think he cares that much about having the ball all the time. Like I think this this is how he wants to play, but most of the time it's just not possible. I mean, not, not so much how he wants to play, but um, I think he wants to attack directly. I think he wants to get the ball forward as quickly as possible. But when teams sit back, that's just not an intelligent thing to do. So I think, in, especially in the Championship, but also the games we've had this season, um, it's been against teams where it is um, the other team... Is uh is is attacking but going quite direct as well, uh and I I just think uh it actually suits us quite well. Uh, the, you you can see the games that where we do have less than fifty percent possession, um it's it's other teams playing into our hands to a certain extent. I think sometimes
0: I'd be interested to see what those games are because obviously you know having more or less possession than than a team um, doesn't make much of a difference. And to be honest with you, I think. I think there there are games where we have had sort of fairly comparable possession with teams, and it will come down to however you're measuring the the possession, and we've lost it. I'm I'm trying to think. I'm I've got a feeling that one of the one of the games that we played against Liverpool, maybe well the game we played against Liverpool perhaps was like really close, and it could have gone either way. But in terms of the um, dominating possession side of things, and and I was not dominating possession. I think we've seen a change of of tactics this season. I think the way that we anticipated playing football this season has changed subtly through the course of the season as Bielsa's uh, I guess problem solved as as we've gone along and <clears throat> I think I'm going to write a piece on this. I think Stuart Dallas is we're going to talk about Dallas later on no doubt but Stuart Dallas is a real um I think he, he's a real he's the real um icon of, of how this has sort of worked its way out. I think we saw Dallas play at the beginning of the season in central midfield, and there was times when we weren't that pleased with it. Um, but I think there's we've we developed a style of play now that that actually benefits um, the way that Dallas plays and, and benefits the way that we play. Um, and I think that was born out yesterday in just the way that we came out in the second half. It's something that Pat Bamford mentioned in the um, post match interview where he said, you know, we decided to played the pitch a little bit and we decided to go a little bit longer and just bypass their press altogether. Um, we were looking for channels uh, a lot of the time. We saw the wide centre-backs trying to find those channels. and I suppose this brings us on to the question of Mike Turetsky who said, Bingo, finally looked more comfortable with a 3-3-1-3, looked better on our lousy pitch and one without Calvin. Is the solution to play it out of defence without the thrills and go longer for Rafinha and Costa to run in behind? Um, yeah, Tom, Tom Woodhead, what did you make of this?
3: Well, I, th- I think you can only go longer when the team you're playing lets you go longer. So it's definitely a tactic that can work when uh, a- the team you're playing is employing a really high press, like Southampton did. Um, and especially once you go a goal ahead, then that's when you're really going to see that kind of thing, I think.
2: It's weird that we're actually looking better on the pitch. I wonder if it's that we're actually, it is turning into a home advantage that we're used to playing on a pitch that shit, that rather than, like I, I don't know, but it's, it still looks terrible and... I, I, I think with this, it might be new actually, John, that said, could we actually get fined for it being so terrible? I don't, I can't see that happening, but it just didn't look good at, um, at points last night. But yeah, I, I agree with Tom on the um, on the running in behind. Like we've we have tried that in the past, but so I think it would we would struggle with that a lot more if a team played a back three or a back um, like if we played a 3 three four three because I think we, we have tried to do that against Brighton and it's harder to go straight to the to the winger when they've got the fullback marking up more directly and they've got another centre-back who can come out and help them whereas in the four four two, it's it's not as easy to do that and that plays to plays to the lead strengths
3: I think it's important to say as well that the, the new pitch is shit in a different way to the old pitch I think <laughs> the, old, the old pitch was um like directly counterproductive to our style of play whereas the new pitch you just fall over all the time so <laughs> You know, at least both teams are equally affected by that. Whereas if your team plays long ball, they weren't really adversely affected by the old shit pitch.
0: The only reason I mentioned that was because when you watch the Rameau injury back, it's very clear that he turns his ankle on the pitch. Um, so there's a player who's directly injured just by the state of the pitch. Same with Click as well, Mateus isn't it? Click, yeah, exactly. I think his, his groin has been done by the fact that the pitch was slippy and he ended up almost doing the splits in a really awkward way. And I think if there's a few more teams that come and they pick up injuries, they might, the FA might have something to say about it. I mean, I don't think it's any cause for concern, but uh, well, I, I do think it is for us because we don't have enough players as it is, but...
3: <laughs> I think if it was a case of us trying to save money in the summer by, you know, half-arsing it and not replacing the pitch, then that'd be one thing. But we physically didn't have the time to do it properly, did we? So I'm sure that would be some kind of mitigation in any judgment that was awarded.
0: Yeah, I'm just interested to see if if anything comes out of it legally, just because, you know, if if a big team comes and they lose one of their best players to uh, something that looks like the pitch has caused it, then they might have something to say. But um, I don't think that's really worth anything. Worry, worry, worrying about but like I say but my big worry is mainly with our players like we've we've got we're down to the bare bones as it is we can barely afford to lose any any other players so um, I, I just see the players are turning dire- changing direction at speed and completely totalling themselves <laughs> there's a few times when Bamford did it yesterday there's a there's a really <laughs> watching the game back there's a really hilarious <laughs> clip where Alioski runs on to, he's at he's sort of nowhere near the play and he's just doing a sort of um uh, I guess he's just making sure that he's doing a pressing movement before the ball goes that way, and it doesn't go that way. You just see him come onto the screen from the right-hand side, and he realizes that he's then got to drop, turn, and go back. And he stops, and he sort of like banana skins on the spot for a <laughs> little bit, and then turns the other way. It's just something I not noticed yesterday. But um, it, I think those those kind of um, slips are quite nervy because I think you can do really you can cause problems with your groin um, if you in these scenarios where suddenly you're trying to rebalance and your body's doing stuff that it doesn't usually do but um hopefully that won't come into it in the long run um <clears throat> yeah i think maybe to no let's move on let's move on and talk about the um the marking system um we had a good question from dan holdsworth he said loving the recent upturn in forms fortune of costa roberts and now urento who started a little shakily tonight but finished the game really strongly has a question about the defensive system. Deployed. Man marking is still in place, but it seems to be less strictly adhered to. There are occasions recently where opposition players are passed off to the next man more often and against high danger players, I, i.e. Eze and Traore, we're seeing doubling up with perhaps players marking space in behind. Agree or am I just spotting something that's always been the way? <clears throat> um, it's something I've mentioned on a few of the videos recently that I've put out in the video analyses. Um, the, I think since we got absolutely rinsed for getting completely run overrun in the midfield areas we've seen a little bit more of what i like to call exchange marking so um exchange marking simply being that players are a little bit happier to be um a bit more fluid with their man marking and we are seeing we are seeing players dropping off in certain scenarios as well. Stuart Dallas is doing this a lot. That's what I was referring to a little bit uh, about before when I mentioned that the way that we've changed uh, with the way that we're playing has changed a little bit and Dallas has been one of the real recipients of that. Um anyone want to add anything to that Tom Tom Woodhead?
3: All I would say is that um I think everything you've said is definitely right and I think Dan um, it is right to an extent but also I think it, even though we've played a man marking system since Bielsa arrived I think it was only something that properly entered into the public consciousness this season and I think when you first become uh, when you first learn that we're doing it you become sort of hyper aware of it uh, and you're looking for it all the time um, so I think to an extent you see small changes as possibly bigger changes than they are sometimes once you do become sort of hyper aware of something like that. But all that being said, I think, yeah, we have slightly, um, we have slightly changed the way we're doing it. But also I think just players as they, become more used to the system become more used to playing in the premier league become more comfortable probably exchanging markers and and some of it may well just be an organic thing where the players are you know getting an even better understanding of each other especially players like Rafinha who haven't been in the team for particularly long
0: i think it's worth noting that that Marcelo Bielsa is always a little bit um Standoffish when it comes to people talking about man marking, and he's always quick to mention that he does he doesn't do a strict man marking system. There, it is an exchange marking system, which means that in certain situations, you you don't have necessarily a responsibility which can never change. There's going to be situations where you can switch from one side to the other. But I mean, it it is very much p- player dependent. I think there's a lot more fluidity in forward areas, obviously, but you'll see even games like last night where. <clears throat> Southampton are playing a really narrow four 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 two, what we call a four two 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 four two two two, 2 Um, which sees the wide players come in quite central. And the, the whole idea is to be able to press the ball quite um compactly and cause the opposition's problems. So we saw Stuart Dallas basically all over the pitch a lot yesterday, because it seemed as though the their right hand player their right hand wide player in the in the in the midfield was just getting very, very narrow all the time. Um, and I guess they were going down the left hand, their left hand side quite a lot as well. Um, so you do see the the fullbacks switching quite a bit. We saw it as well against Wolves where the front three was very fluid and we were seeing Adama Traore go one, go one way and Pedro Neto going the other. And um, you were seeing at times Dallas and, and um, ailing following them uh, one side to the other, which is, which is quite interesting. But, just one more thing to, to reiterate is I do think that we're seeing a little bit more of a, a willingness to leave gaps between players this season than we have in the Championship. Now, that, sim- that may simply be a, a tactical reason because we're, we're dominating much less than we were in the Championship in that sense, but particularly um, particularly in the midfield area, um, when play when midfielders on the opposition team now are trying to drag our midfielders out of position, there's a willingness by our midfielders to sort of allow that to happen uh, and stay a little bit more zonal, just so that we're not leaving huge gaps in the midfield area.
3: I guess in the championship, we we were a lot more confident of our individual quality compared to the oppositions, so we're happy happier to just rely on those individual duels.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a sort of watchword of the Premier League that we're seeing any centre-back with any ball-carrying ball, ball carrying ability attacking us, and we're seeing any midfielder who has a one-on-one advantage trying to go around us, and we just didn't see that in the, in the championship at all. So now it's very much about making sure that in certain scenarios you do have that backup player who can, uh, if the if the first player gets around... If the, if the opposition player gets around the first defender then there's a second defender who's able to sort of get onto their second touch and and, and make the difference but I, I definitely think there's something something on it but Tom Alderson we've not let you talk on this so is there anything that you wanted to add to the discussion?
2: Yeah just to build on that I was just thinking we don't haven't well in the two seasons in the championship we didn't really see these high danger players very often so we didn't. It wasn't something I don't. I think we had to do. We, I can't think of if we had to do that to Eze in the first game. But there's one one that sticks in my mind was when we played Fulham after the, the restart, and it was a little bit different. But we had like I think it was Ben White was going for headers with Mitrovic, um, and then what I think it was ailing it might be the other way around this, but ailing was sitting behind him and almost covering in a very similar way to this just to make sure that the space was covered in behind and I, so I think it's something that we might have been doing on high danger players maybe in a slightly different way for, um, for a while and it's just highlighting itself now because we're seeing a lot more of those players week, um, each week.
0: Let's move on and talk about set pieces. <clears throat> I, we, I talked a little bit about set pieces in the video analysis piece as well this week, because obviously against Wolves we we were really quite dangerous from those set pieces. But El Barker says after the last few games I'm starting to wonder: Are we good at set pieces now? Uh, Tom Alderson, are we good at set pieces now?
2: Yeah, we're good at set pieces now. I I, I can go with that. Um, I think Rafinha's delivery again last night was absolutely spot on, and it's it made me think of after um, podcast well, it must have been ages ago we did this, but we talk about like ball striking. And just Graffini is just such a good striker of the ball, and he always seems to hit it cleanly. And I, it was there was one where he, he was like in the middle of the pitch, and he hit it to Lorente, and it just went perfectly to where Lorente was running to. And it's, it's quite often you see with Calvin Phillips that he will just hit, either hit the first man or he just won't quite it won't quite go where you want it to do. And I think that's a large part of it. And then another part of it is just that I think having strike there makes such a difference. I think he's another threat, and it it's or that's also opened up. Cooper to be more of a threat as well
0: yeah and I, I noticed yesterday um so the way that we set up usually for corners and certain free kicks is we have three players in the middle of of the opponent's defenders so we'll have Bamford and then the two centre-backs and then you'll have usually Luke Ayling on the front post and then Jack Harrison or whoever's um I guess the the winger who isn't Rafinha on the back post uh, I noticed yesterday that we obviously we brought in Urente, who's another good header of the ball, and I was kind of like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here. I wonder if we'll stick with the three and one of them will drop out, and but we just went with four players in the middle, um, so we've now got like four, like three um, good players. Sorry, yeah, three good players from from centre back at heading, and Bamford as well, and then you've got your your front post and your back post as well. So no doubt that that sort of thing will impact. Um, games as well from from here on in and even I guess even if we do play a pivot on the weekend and we go with um maybe Strauch as that as that player and then you have Llorente and um Cooper as centre-backs you're then going to be sending your your pivot your de- defensive midfielder forward for corners as well which is just going to make us more dangerous because usually we've got Calvin Phillips who won't be in the box for a corner you're just adding another uh, another element that is going to be more dangerous. is going to be um, pulling opponent defenders around as well and, and just make it harder for them to deal with. So yeah, we're looking really good from set pieces. Tom Woodhead, what's your thoughts on set pieces?
3: Yeah, I mean, this might be a slightly simp- simplistic way of looking at it, but I, I sort of realised last night that we, we now had basically four players playing who, um, through, the re- through their youth career and the early part of their career, were centre-backs um, you know, we've got uh, Cooper and Strike and Lorente and Ailing, And these players will have grown up the majority of their footballing career being the target um, for these corner situations. So again, it, it's possibly a simplistic way of looking at it, but you've got four players there who are very used to doing the things that you need to do to be on, you know, to be a target at corners. So that can only help.
0: Right, let's talk about Rafinha because he is the man of the moment. Um, Johnny Bielsa says, not so much a question, but Rafinha. Which I quite liked. Obviously, absolutely superb again. But what about his mentality? He plays with burning positive anger all the time. His brain matches his skills too. He's the star man for sure in this team, whether Bielsa likes it or not, which is, I don't know what that means, but um, there we are. Let's talk a little bit about Rafinha.
3: Um, Tom Woodhead. I think he was, yeah, he was great again. Um, He shows more and more that he's capable of playing on either side as well, I think, which will, um, I think will come more and more in handy in various games. Um, He's, He's... We've I think we've probably talked about this but before, but he's almost that sort of a a synthesis of of Costa and Pablo's best bits. Um he can drop deep and do the Pablo stuff. He can he can run on the outside like Costa, he can he's got pace, he's got dribbling ability, he can pass, he's a good finisher. He's really pretty much everything you want from a wide attacking player in this team.
0: He is really smart too, I think. Like some of the some of the things that he does and his speed of thought is is really good. Um I think there's there's a few moments where it, you, it's not just that he can get past a man down the line, right? Because Adama Traore can do that. It's it's when he gets past his man, you know that he's going to have the time and wherewithal to be able to find players in the box, um, and we saw, we've seen him do that time and time again. I think that makes a huge difference. And you you know we you, we can talk about Tyler Roberts um, misses yesterday all we want, but I think once you once players get used to the idea that they've got Um, a teammate who's going to hit the byline and find them in the box I think that will it won't be long before we start seeing some of those go in Um, and I'm quite excited to see what what happens there Um, Tom Alderson Liam Horsley said we I know we all prefer Rafinha on the right but did he press better from the left or is that purely down to them having a centre-back at right back what did you make of that
2: I felt really sorry for Jan Bednarek last night. He looked at the at the end of the game. He looked like an absolute broken man, didn't he? <laughs> he just, I think there was one in like the 88th minute. Rafinha went round him, and he just, he was just like, ah, oh, I don't need this anymore. He <laughs> just, but um, I'd, I'm not too sure on that one to be honest. But it probably did have an effect. I think we have seen in the previous games that I think. Um, Rafinha does press better on this left-hand side. I don't know if that's just because it's a, a left-footed thing or what. So it's it's your body shaping is a bit more uh, natural. But it, just to talk about his all round defensive game, it just it seems to be that I think of the the Everton game, we were a bit worried about his ability to press and his defensive work, and he just was it wasn't as good as Jack Harrison. So we were like, well, we'll move Jack Harrison across to the right to... Be more defensive and I, w- I would have absolutely no problems with Rafinha having to do that work now I think he's he seems to have just come on so much in just the last even like the last two weeks and it's yeah he's he's probably just getting up to speed and he just he, if he's just going to get better it's just unbelievable really.
0: I think there's a few things to say here one of them is that I see a lot of people sort of t- deciding that what a winger plays better on one side or the other and I think with Rafinha, I don't think it matters so much. I think he will have games where he's good on the right. He will have games where he's good on the left. I think there's always tactical reasons why Bielsa goes one way or the other. Um, the other thing is to say that, you know, pressing from the right and pressing from the left do look different. I think when you look at the forward press, I think Bamford tends towards the right hand side. Um, so he's much more likely to, especially if we have a, like, a, if we're playing against a front three or back three, sorry, which we were yesterday in effect because bad, Bednarek was, was playing on the on the um, it was playing as a right back, but he was nowhere near as high as um, as um, Ryan Bertrand was. Ryan Bertrand, is that his name? Yeah, on the on the on the other side. Um, and I think that when you when you're pressing against three, Bamford will tend to stay between the central center back and then the the left center back, and then Harrison or Rafini will push on the right center back. Um, and I think that's that's the pressing ma- ac- action that matters, and I think, um the the other pressing action that you will have is more of a defensive one, which is which is why I think we started with Harrison on the right yesterday was because there was a realization that um, not only would Rafinha be able to cause more problems for Bednarik, but Harrison would be able to track um, Bertrand coming deeper much better. Um, and I think you know that's that that's certainly something that needs to be taken into account. They, you know there's 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 a lot of variables that go into the decision on which side to play one or the other. Um, Tom Woodhead, did you want to add anything on the on the sort of more defensive side of Rafinha?
3: I think he probably does equally well on either side, but he was just yeah, he was a his opponent wasn't really offering much when he was over on the left, so it was a lot more tricky for him in the right, but I still think he did well on the right. I think he, he's very diligent, even if he's not always, he's not always the most skilled presser, but you can't fault him for the amount of effort that he's putting in. And, and he's getting better and better at switching man when he needs to and, uh, and learning all the different triggers. So, you know, I, uh, a catalyst for much more from him at the moment. In that regard, I don't think.
0: And the other th- interesting thing that Bielsa said in the press conference yesterday was that, I think the quote that, the quote was, "When when you have a player who's as talented as Rafinha, there's not really much you can do as a manager. The best thing to do is to just let him do the things that he does." Right.
3: There's a there's a, an old interview with Bielsa when he was in Mexico. I don't know if you've ever watched it. Um, it came on YouTube a, a year or so ago, um, and it's it, he he talks about this quite a lot. Like it. it it's it's a weird interview it's on some kind of like um highbrow talk show so uh, you, you know that, you know sort of like a sky arts sort of setup or something and uh, and and he basically he says that you do occasionally get players who don't need to be taught but um and that's and that's bad but what what you have more i mean and that's great sorry but what you have more often is players who don't think they need to be taught but do need to be taught and i think and the comments he was he was saying about Rafinha the other day i think he clearly does view him as someone who it's worth making certain indulgences for um and and i think you know he had a similar player in Dimitri Payet at Marseille um, and uh, um, to an a certain extent, Pablo Hernandez in the championship for Leeds. So I, th- I think his teams always seem to operate at their absolute best when they do have a player like that who can who can break the molds of the system and 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 give it a, and someone who's given the license to operate outside of the system to a certain extent, at least in possession
0: yeah there's some really interesting musical metaphors that you can use with this I think because obviously there's a the famous quote about if i if if I was able to if football was played with robots then I would win every time right that's the the Marcelo bielsa quote um but he's also got a lot of quotes about the abilities to extemporize and um the the way that I understand bielsa's system is not that it is rigid and that it is it is uh unfailingly the same every time the point is is that once you've learned the general rules of of how you can play the score then you can do with the score what you like and I I think Rafinha is definitely a player like that right he knows the score now um he can he he's he's very much a like a jazz improvise improviser where he's he he knows the rules he knows what you can do and it's only because he knows the rules that he can then go on to be creative in the way that he is but I think that that's that's really fun to see because I don't think we've really seen that too much uh, under Bielsa at Leeds. I think maybe Samu Saiz was, was potentially a player like that as well. Uh, but it, again, went probably too far to the towards the side of thinking that he was good enough to not know the score. Uh, and I think that's what is so good about Rafinha is that he has been diligent in picking up the system and now he can go beyond the system um, by by simply... I don't know fulfilling the system in its in its highest uh, synthesis I'm going too hegelian here so we'll, we'll move on <laughs> um another wide player who played well yesterday is Helder Costa I think we need to talk about him um we've already mentioned how the second half plan was very much more to try and be a bit more direct down the wide areas uh, and Helder Costa I thought was brilliant yesterday at doing that um, in terms of being able to pick up the ball and carry it I think he's a much better ball carrier into space than than Harrison is um And I think that's probably why Bielsa went with him. Uh, Good friend Callum Archibald says, is Helder Costa worth a start over Jackie now, given his recent contributions from the bench? He was superb today. Best performance since Fulham for him. Also, yas, what a win, boys. If John reads this out on the pod, he has to say yas, by the way. So Callum, consider yourself yast. Uh, I've done it. Um... But yeah, let's talk about Helder Costa. Tom Alderson, what do you make of, of this? Is 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 Helder Costa looking more likely more likely to start these days? I think so.
2: It's it's nice to see. Well, we are still with Roberts. He's he's almost like two weeks behind Robert, where Roberts was. Where if he's get he's getting a run of games and he's just giving him the confidence and he's just looking much more, um, much better when he plays. And the the thing I was thinking about this last night because I was, I was thinking, well, would you want to start Costa over Harrison? And I don't think Harrison's done anything to deserve being dropped but the the reason I could see him coming in is if we have another situation where we start Rafinha on the left wing to to target their right right back which I think is potentially something we could see against Villock with Matty Cash being out is to start Costa on that right wing because I I think um, Costa on the right wing can cause a lot a lot more problems um, for the opposition than Jack Harrison can so that I think that's something I potentially like to see but it's it's nice to see Costa doing well. He's just he's so good when he's he's got the time and the space to to run at someone. Like I think this was in his sort of his best season at Wolves. That was something that we uh, we saw a lot was that teams were pinging it long to him and he had the space just to be one on one with their back and he. That that was probably the best season of his career. So it's it's no surprise to see him. Uh, doing well when the game goes out as it did last night
3: yeah I, I would be surprised to see him start for the next two or three games yet because i think bielsa he wants his players to know that they're not going to be dropped as long as they're following all of his instructions um he'll, he'll tolerate the odd bad game or uh you know poor crosses or a bad finish or misplaced passes and things like that because he i don't think he wants his players to play with the kind of fear that comes with um, being scared about being dropped all the time, which is why you do quite often see players get, who are getting a lot of flack from the fans stay in the team for a lot longer than than most people would normally keep. them. we've had Luke Ayling going through this before. We've had Matt Click going through this before. Um, we've had Dallas going through this before. You know, all, Bamford, almost every member of the team has uh, at some point, had people calling for them to be dropped and Bielsa tends to stick with them and it, he's not hes not like so dogmatic that he won't eventually drop someone who's consistently underperforming but he will constantly give them the chance but equally I think he expects substitutes rather than just per- per- producing one or two good performances to get a start. He'll want to see Helder Costa produce four or five good performances from the bench and then he might consider putting him in and I think it was the same with Tyler Roberts. He, he wanted to see that Roberts was doing it consistently from the bench, and then he's and then he thought, right, okay, now you've got a chance to show me what you can do from the start, and I, I think it will be the same with Costa.
0: I think I think there's also a tactical element, right? I think we've we've seen that, that that he that Costa's brought on in very specific games, and I wonder whether or not you know a lot of what we say about Leeds and 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 Bielsa changing his tactics this season, it does feel as though he's been more reactive in the second half of games. We've seen a lot of better second halves from Leeds than first halves. And I wonder whether or not that will, will, mean that Costa is retained as a potential impact sub. If, if Bielsa wants to come out and try and build up possession and try and be dangerous in the way that we're, that he wants to be dangerous and then it doesn't work and we're getting pressed high and then we need to bring on someone like Costa who can help us sort of decompress a little bit and, and avoid have, getting caught out in, in deep possession phases. Um, I do think that there's maybe a little bit of recency bias with, with Costa in so far as both, I think both um, Arsenal and um, Southampton have pressed us quite high and it's been quite nice to have an option to to sort of play that kind of player who you can just launch the ball down the channel and he's quick enough to get on it and hold it for long enough for the rest of the team to catch up.
3: I think there's something to be said for um, Costa just being better against tired legs as well because he is so quick. Um, I, I, th- I think he, c- he can... You wouldn't get that from Harrison if you were bringing Harrison on for Costa towards the end of the game, I don't think. He he wouldn't offer the same kind of threat against tired legs. So.
0: Right, Neil Maltby says, what did we think of Llorente? Great to get him 90 minutes. Looked a bit slow, but I think that's his style. Berbatov-esque. Good pass to Tyler to open them up for Bamford goal. Thoughts? Um, I'm almost very conscious of us starting narratives on this podcast, so um, I think we should caveat this by saying that you know we're going to need to see a lot more of of Llorente before we can really make a a good judgment on him but I think there's certain things that that we can say about him so um Tom Woodhead do you want to kick off on
3: this yeah first of all I'm not sure about describing a centre-back as (laughs) Berbatov-esque but but I would like to see a centre-back that played really Berbatov-esque anyway (laughs) uh yeah I, I, I don't think he was particularly great uh He did do some good things though. Um, I think you could tell he was quite nervous at times, which is understandable given what's happened every time he stepped on a pitch before for Leeds. Um, Some of his passing was good. Uh, He showed a willingness to step out with the ball from the back, which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. Um, Defensively, I think we did see him get isolated one-on-one a few times. Um, But in general, as you say, I would like to reserve judgment on him in any uh, in any serious way, uh, until I've seen him play at least three or four games for Leeds.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm much the same really. I think I thought I thought his passing was pretty good, um, obviously for the goal. And then I think there was a couple of times where he did some long passes either into click or Roberts or to switch it to kind of beat their press, which were quite good. But I think defensively he did look a bit suspect at times. I think he wasn't sure sort of when to, when to follow his man, when to jump in a bit. And that kind of left left him a bit isolated because he was having to turn back t- uh, towards his goal. The ball had gone past him, and he looks. Well, he looked a bit slow, like like Neil said. Um, I think a, he may be in a couple of games time. If, if he's got more used to it, he might he might look better. But I, I don't think he. I think people were kind of looking for Lorente to be good. Whereas I, I think if Cooper had thrown in that sort of performance, I don't think anyone would really. He bothered either way, he, and he just he just the passing was kind of what I'd expect from Cooper or Strike, really. But yeah, like like we said, I think in a couple of games' time, he might he, he should get better, and then I'll have um I think he could be could be good. But yeah, at the moment, I'll reserve judgment.
0: I think there's a few things to say. One of the things to say is that a lot of the narrative around Eurenta ignores the fact that if you look at the timeline of him being brought in, what happened was Robin Koch was brought in, he got injured against Liverpool, and I think at that point they realised there was going to be at some point a um an injury. He was going to have to have an operation at some point on his knee. Um, and they basically decided, I think that there was a gap in the, well, I think that they, they were just going to see how far they could get with Koch before doing the, um, the operation. But I think they knew that they were going to have to do it this season as it transpired. And so they brought in Urente after that point. So I think he was very much, there's always been questions about why would you pay less? for your first choice in that position and then someone who's brought in as a backup. And I think it's pro- probably because we were probably held over the fire a little bit because we were a bit desperate to bring someone in who we would be happy bringing in straight away. Um So I think that needs to be said because I, I think if you look at the transfer in that way, it's very much, he's brought in as a backup to Robin Koch. Um, so, I think that maybe changes the way that we, we view him a little bit. Um, the other things that I would say is, um, one is that um, I, th- I think he did quite well going forward, as you, as you guys have mentioned, and I think that will always make people slightly more endeared uh, about a centre-back. Um, in terms of his passing, he had the lowest pass percentage completion rate of any centre-back this season. Um, in terms of defensive side of things, he got dribble past four times, which I think is also the highest number of... Um, Uh, dribbles that have gone past a a player I've I also kind of think that there's a lot of people saying you know oh I'm quite glad he got 90 minutes under his belt which is true it's nice that he's got 90 minutes under his belt but that's a very low bar (laughs) for a a centre-back who is one you know towards the end of his well he's in the peak of his career he's played at the highest levels uh, in Spain and also internationally Um, I'm not I I kind of feel a little bit like we're going to treat him as though he is an up-and-coming youngster more than uh, than a peak player but um, I think all in all we just have to we just have to take him as he is right he's he's the backup at right centre-back and he's had lots of injuries um, since he's come to Leeds and he's brought on on a pitch that is a nightmare to play on um, and yeah he has got 90 minutes out of it but I think that people are maybe expecting him to be more than the club has even ever intended him to be um, but yeah, like we said, it's important not to, I think, cast judgment on him at this point and, and hopefully I think he'll put in better performances. My big worry is just defensively, I just don't think he's good enough 1v1 and I think that's an issue when you're in the system, when you play the, a man-marking system to a certain extent. Um, I also think that he is never going to be very good in the defensive midfield role Um just based on a few of the things that we've said, right, he's one-on-one defending his um positional sense as well. Maybe he will pick up the system and become much better on the positional side of things, but I don't think he's mobile enough uh to play the DM role. Um I think the thing with Calvin Phillips on it, I think... Also, to an extent, Strauk, Although a lot of people don't think that he's mobile, is that their ability to cover space and um, and and move quickly and turn quickly is is um, much better than Llorente's. But here endeth the lesson. Stuart Dallas. We should just mention uh, quickly because I think he had a great game yesterday. Uh, Adam Michael Finney said Dallas is finding cover for Dallas our biggest off-season task. At Bilbao, Bielsa had DeMarcos who'd play everywhere. Now Dallas is a par- paragon of versatility, exuding such quality. What a player! Uh, where does even where does one even look for another Dallas? What a game today! What a. T- uh, which I think is, is very good. Um, who wants to talk about Dallas? Tom
3: Woodhead? I mean, you can't see it on the podcast but I like the amount of exclamation marks used in this, <laughs> in this question. This is very
0: much straight after the match tweeting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh,
3: I, I, uh, yeah, I thought Dallas was great and he's been great for a while and uh, earlier on in the season we were very critical about Dallas multiple times on his podcast and he's just been very, very good um, for the last seven or eight games and is he's basically at the moment the key uh to almost all of our uh formational changes from game to game so it's just a real blessing to have him in the team especially when he's playing so well and 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 doing decisive things like the goal and you know playing some really great passes as well that pass through to Rafinha um to put Rafinha through in the first half was lovely um, he looks permanently worried all the time, but I am no longer worried about him being in the team.
2: To answer the bit about his finding cover for Dallas our biggest off-season task? I think, personally, I think he will... Dallas will just become the cover and will buy a first-choice a first 1st starter. Um, but yeah, like not just like everything that Tom said, he played really well. I, th- I actually think he was potentially better left back in the first half than he was in central midfield when he was moved there later in the game. Um, I think he did did really well there and like Tom said, I don't have any worry Dallas and we were pretty harsh on Dallas playing midfield um, a couple of months back and I actually have got no problems with that. I think he's really good there now.
0: Yeah, I think that's worth saying that we were too harsh on on Dallas. Um, I think partly things have changed a little bit tactically but I think uh, equally we have needed someone like Dallas to come in and sort out a lot of the problems that we had when we were playing Click and Rodrigo there. Um, And, you know, yes, we're probably not the most exciting team in the midfield area, but I think equally tactically, we just don't play in the midfield very much other than defensively. So it's fine to play a defensive player uh, for cover there, whereas actually in build-up play, you're either helping move the ball down the wing or you're right forward in an advanced wide area and you're doing build up play between a a triangle of players you don't need to be um, necessarily the best ball carrier for that Um, it does help when we've got players like obviously Tyler Roberts you can do that when we need to decompress through the middle but um, I do think that moving Dallas into central midfield has sorted out a lot of problems that we've had it does remain to be seen what happens when Rodrigo comes back though but that's uh, another topic for another podcast episode
1: Let's get this dinner party
0: started. This week I was lucky enough to talk to James Rushton of Reach PLC and the Claret and Blue podcast. And this is what he had to say about Villa. So James, hi, how are you doing?
4: i'm getting on pretty well i think we'll speak about it in the episode but both our football clubs have done reasonably be- better than expected this season so really happy of mm. the impact we're both making you know, of course football has such an impact on your personal life so when, when villa and leeds are doing well i guess we're both happy mate
0: and you've really nailed down the uh the ben pearson looking lockdown
4: yeah uh, i mean i'm not getting paid how much uh grand a week to play for um <laughs> play for bournemouth i was almost at preston then faux pas but uh yeah, uh, I, w- I want to look like him. I want to eventually play football like him. Probably one of the most underrated footballers in England. So, no idea why he's still in the Championship, mate, messing around. Could be <laughs> styling out the look for most of us.
0: Well, we're not here to talk about Bournemouth <laughs> and Championship football because, as you well know, and I well know, we are no longer Championship football clubs. So, let's turn to talk about Leeds and Villa. Uh, let's focus on Villa, but we're deep in the season now, and Villa are in a completely different place, as you've mentioned, to where they were last season. You must be pretty happy with how the season's gone so far.
4: Amazingly happy. I think the only depressing point is you get carried away, don't you, as a fan when, you, you know, when you knock Liverpool around seven 2 Crystal Palace, and I mean they've been played poorly this season, but they're no mugs. They're an established Premier League team, and you knock them around on Boxing Day. You know, you, you think you, you you are on the path to something really good this season. Maybe even I don't want to get carried away, but uh, you, you think about European football a lot, and even the top four finish, but then. The big boys come to play, don't they? Man City turn up. Uh, Manchester United get results. Chelsea sack their manager. Fran Lampard, of course, so they getting someone with actual kind of tactical now. So, yeah, I think the ebb and flow of the season kind of disrupts your hopes. But honestly, John, it has been a fantastic season. My pre-season hopes may have been about 15th to 13th. 13th's a low bar right now. There's so much more we can uh, achieve. So very, very happy.
0: All happiness aside, the big news for Villa is that Jack Grealish is out for the near future. What does life without Grealish look like for you?
4: It's hard to say because I don't want to say that they're a one-man team, but they are a a non-elite team with a player who has elite qualities. And losing him does have a massive tactical impact because when we played Leicester City without him, yes, the game state allowed Leicester to sit back on a comfy 2-0 lead. And bring on defensive midfielder. After the defensive midfielder, by the time Hamza Choudry came on, I thought they must have made four defensive midfield changes. Of course, impossible. But without that X factor that Jack Grealish brings, it's really, really, really hard to kind of get in. And at teams in the last ten minutes when they're bunkering down and sitting back, it's it's really hard without that X factor. And especially when Ross Barkley is on exactly playing, uh, you know, ten out of ten form, it's really hard for us to break down games. But look, we can only get better without Grealish as we go on people say we should have rested him it's not it's it's not possible for a team like Villa to rest their best player it's not what the player would want himself so things happen in football players get injured as you well know with Calvin Phillips and the way you have to adapt there slightly similar for Villa they have to make an adaptation they have to find a way without Grealish because he's not going to be playing against Leeds there's pretty much no chance um if it, it said it's not a recurring injury I find it hard to believe I don't know what the truth is but he could be out for a month to two months, so I don't really, I can't see him playing against the Leeds in the next game. Look, we have to find a way. Life finds a way, don't it? you? You know, you have to balance out, don't you?
0: So, what do you think the biggest challenge is going to be for you in the second half of the season? Is it just going to be dealing with life without Grealish? Pretty
4: much. Um, again, I don't want to go down the whole one man team thing, but Villa's game plan, pretty much the way you chuck Ollie Watkins wide, and the, way, the reason you have Ross Barkley run into space is to open up so much room for that one man, Jack Grealish, who's going to be. Jack Grealish without Jack Grealish because at the moment it doesn't look like it's going to be Barkley which is odd for me to say because I thought you know you brought in a player on so much money who should be setting that example that if Leeds brought in Ross Barkley on loan you'd expect him to be the man every game and it's the same for Villa if you brought in a player of that quality yes he can be hit and miss yes there are are dry patches but it's, it's you know he hasn't really Shown that X factor, what we miss with Grealish, he hasn't shown that elite ability, hasn't shown that promise and that potential that this this chance that Villa should give him. So, the challenge is finding who is going to be him. If not Jack Grealish, who is going to be the the floppy haired playmaker on the pitch? Who's going to get, <laughs> you know, who's going to fall down either easier or get hacked down? You know, who is going to win the fouls? Who is going to get fouled? Who's going to draw attention? Certainly uh, not many players, but hopefully a youngster like Jacob Ramsey can do so. But, you know, um, we haven't seen a great, great deal from him yet. But we've seen enough of Ross Barkley to know that right now. We just need so much more.
0: With all of this in mind, what sort of finishing position are you expecting from Villa this time around?
4: If I have it right, seventh place could end up pretty much qualifying you for Europe, depending on how the cup competitions lay out. Europa Conference League place for the new competition. I'd love a seventh-flight finish. I'd love it. I'd love it. But I think it is just going to go against Villa if you don't have Grealish and you're not able to hit the floor running without him. Now you're going to finish 8th to 13th. And look, no European competition for those places. No relegation. It's safely mid-table. The only difference between 8th and 13th really is is the number and the money awarded to the football club. But anywhere in that range is massive progress for Villa. Massive, massive progress. You know, five places from 8th to 13th, from 8th is 13th, five places from 15th to 20th is relegation. Still a massive difference in how, you know, how you finish the season. So really do expect now 8th to 13th would be, and it would be a remarkable achievement.
0: How would you feel about Europe given that you're in a situation where you've lost one player and and it's changed the the tenor of your season? Do you think that it, it may be too soon for Villa to be thinking about Europe? Would you rather risk missing out on europe this time around building uh, the squad and and the team next season and and then going in that that season rather than this season
3: i think
4: it's kind of two feces that uh, appeal to me both appeal to me i would love to qualify for europe this season but it's highly unlikely if that i don't know about the situation with fans being allowed in stadium in stadiums across europe but i I still can't see that being a massive reality for every Villa fan who wants to go to an away game in Europe for that to be achievable next season. So yes, maybe it would be better to hold off and qualify for Europe next season, but there there are no guarantees in football and you have to take the chance that's in front of you. So if Villa are to qualify for Europe this season, there will be a job on in recruitment, but you qualify for Europe this season, pipe dream is, yes, you might slump off in the league and finish 10th, 12th, whatever. That's still fine. Can you win a cup competition? Can you bring in those those quality players? Can you make Villa, you know, a project to pitch to the best agents in the in the world to bring in the best talent? Because you look at Wolves and they've been able to do so, and there has been a, has been some kind of slump and a drop off. So, like, you have to take the chance that's in front of you. And if Europe's on the cards this season, I'll take that rather than betting it on it next season.
0: What did you make of the last game between these two sides? Oh, it's
4: terrible. We got we got <laughs> played off the park. It was. We didn't have much answers for you. And I think the early kind of route of Villa, the att- not just in goals, but in the attacking sense, um, but I think it was, who, who did Bielsa bring off really early? Was it Strike? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. It's just the decision there to no other team is going to do that. They're going to pl- hedge their bets and they're going to... C- carry on he, he would have been sent off I, I'm pretty certain he would have end up being sent off in that first off if he wasn't taken off that's a game changer and that's a difference between you know the and the rest is the, the risk taking the gamble the educated decision to, to bet on his team and bet on that bench player and you, you just tore us apart I mean Patrick Bamford had some pretty hard chances to score. I mean, he you didn't score your best chances. If I remember correctly, it was some hell of a finish by Patrick Bamford for his two goals. One, it was covered off. I'm I'm going off my mind here, so I haven't got the the footage in front of me. But I won. I believe he was in the box and covered by every defe- filler's defensive player. I think Douglas Louise Lu- was pressured him from behind. Mings him locked lockdown. and he finishes past Martinez, who's one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League, from a really tough position the angle of the shot was incredible so i think yeah it was pretty good tactically it was pretty good the game plan but when your players needed to turn up and your manager needed to turn up they did and it was one of the worst filler results of this season it's been a massive massively positive season uh you know i don't want to be a, a doom and gloom now here but I, I find it hard to believe how we would turn that over at ellen road so to speak
0: Do you think we'll see anything different from Dean Smith this time around? I mean, obviously, Grealish isn't going to be playing, but um, as you've mentioned, he definitely didn't get the tactics right last time around. Uh, What do you think you'll see this time?
4: I really hope we play the game like we did against Southampton, where it's a bit more shut down. And that's not to say it's negative football. It's just sometimes there is a naivety around Villa, and there are two teams that we have tried to press high, tried to go at and been run over and it's both been at home and that is Leeds and that's, and one of them is Brighton and we've been done on the counter or they've just been so overwhelming on one wing or the other. Dean Smith is set in his ways and for a good way, Villa's plan A works. It has worked pretty much when it's needed to. Without Grealish, what is that plan A? You know, again, it goes back to who can step up without Ross, if it's not Ross Barkley, who is going to be the difference maker? Because maybe, yeah, he did get the tactics wrong, but can you, I don't I don't see how Dean Smith could could plan to take down leads so to speak. I'm not casting doubt on his abilities. It's what him and Beal have achieved at their respective clubs this season has been fantastic. But I think so much of our play depends on that elite player opening up that space and changing the game and making the chances and assists. Who will step up in that formation? Who will, if it's four four three, who will step up on that left flank? If it's four two three one, who's stepping up in the middle? It's got to be someone. Someone has to, has to do it.
0: In terms of the tactics through the course of the season, do you think Villa have changed much?
4: There's still the naivety, like I said. There's still the, the really odd, gung-ho, high press against teams that just tear us apart. Like, like Leeds, who've done it at Villa Park this season. Um, since lockdown, there has been a change. There has been a little less of that naivety, but it's still on show. Uh, Villa thrive in chaos. They thrive at when, when the ball is pinging around when their second balls to be won. Villa thrive on cast. It's against the teams that on their day find a really organised approach. Leicester City on, on, uh, on Saturday. Or Sunday, was it now? Sunday, I believe. I don't know. I feel, Time is just a, a really void <laughs> construct at the moment. But the, the last game against Leicester <laughs> City, really, really organised approach. And there's none of the, the kind of hectic play in the midfield that Villa can take advantage of. So... You know, change tactically, yes, but it's it's almost like a game to game swing. Villa are both defensively solid and kind of lethal attacking, but not in any one game. It switches back and forth. So overall, you can look on understat and go, "Wow, Villa have really restricted chances this season and have really made good chances." But that is one game where they're just restricting everything, and another game where they're making loads of chances and conceding loads of chances. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's hectic, but it seems like Villa have got a grasp on that chaos and can thrive in it rather than just being completely overwhelmed from it. By the it's more sort of tactical change between last season and this season, more so than during the course of the season. How are you looking
0: injury wise at the moment?
4: <laughs> well, the big one's obviously uh, Jack Grealish, but apart from that, nothing is really really a problem. It's more sort of rotation. Um, we're not playing a new player like Morgan Sanson. Um, we're not playing our midfielders. We seems like we're running Douglas Luis, and John McGinn into the ground quite a bit. So it's more so the injuries that could come rather than the injuries we have at the moment, of course, defined by that, that one big headline.
0: How do you think that you'll line up on Saturday then?
4: Dean Smith is stuck in his ways and... Well done to him because it has achieved a lot of Villa. But the format, it's it's more so little fiddly midfield roles that change. The wingers always cut inside and shoot on a stronger foot. Watkins is always pressing out to the flank. Um, So Watkins starts uh, on the wings. It will have to be Bertrand Traore. And it's probably going to be Trezeguet over Anwar El in the 10. Well, he wasn't playing 10 against Leicester, but in the role I assume he would be. He would have to be... I can't see Ross Barkley not starting. He's had some mares, but it looks like we're sticking with him. So it'll be Ross Barkley. Don't see the midfield changing. It has just been the same all season, the double pivot of uh, Louise and McGinn. Back four will be... Target, Mings, Konza. And sorry, there was an injury I did forget to mention, Matty Cash, which is it's an incredibly important one at, at right flank. But it, it looks like Ahmed al will play, and he's pretty solid. Um, he, had, he had a tough game against Leicester, but that's more so because he was playing against Harvey Barnes. You know, Leeds still have a, a wide threat, so we'll see there. But there could be a, a debut for Kane Kessler-Hayden, who's kind of outgrown the under-23s ranks, and he was one of the, the kids who played against Liverpool in that, that weird FA Cup match. He looks like he could be the next thing for Villa at fullback and he should have a chance. I don't know if it's starting against Leeds, but I'd expect that if there is any lineup surprise, it'll be him at uh, at right back and uh, Martinez will be in goal, of course.
0: The well, question I always ask our guests is which players on your team need to perform well if you're to beat Leeds? On midfield, we'll have to attempt to wrangle some control
4: of this game. Our defence is pretty good. Yes, it can be opened up as you, as you well know, but most part over the course of the season on average overall, they are restricting chances and they're, they're pretty good at either blocking their shots, forcing the, the shot from the hardest angle or saving the shot from Martinez. So, You know, if Leeds are going to attack, of course they are. They're going to wrestle control of the game and attack. So it's not so much a defence that is the problem. It's how do we respond to going a goal or two behind? Are we going to create chances? Are we going to score them? So we need Ollie Watkins is putting in pretty much a bang average seven to eight out of ten performance every game just from pressing alone. So no qualms about him. It's just the support he receives. You know, is Trezeguet going to be able to to break through and, and work all match to drag attention and create the chances. If Al Ghazi plays, is he going to have a consistent game? Is he not going to get wound up by some of his, you know, sometimes he'll pull off a brilliant trick and beat players two or three or four. Other times he'll run it straight into the ground. So will he get frustrated? Will he, will he concentrate and I mean, deliver the performance we all know capable? But the, the player above all, Johnny's Ross Barkley without Grealish above all, Ross Barkley again, should be, should be setting the standards at Villa. So this It has to be a statement game for him if he he is selected, because I I do worry, yes, I know I said that we would have to select him, but if anything goes, that last game against Leicester was probably a performance deserving of a bench. So we'll see, he'll need to step up.
0: And at the other side of the pitch, which Leeds players worry you in particular?
4: Rafinha, I've not seen much of him, but just seen I think, what's that that count? Is it the other 14? And it's kind of the stats outside the top six. And you always see chances created Rafinha growing week by week in influence. So, he's really, really found his space at Villa. Um, Leeds, sorry. <laughs> I wish he was a bloody Villa player at the moment.
0: Well, <laughs> he's a Freudian slip.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I'm letting uh, my my love for Leeds kind of come across a lot in this side. I'm not playing <laughs> up to the to the All-Stats zone we um, support us. You know, it's He's a genuinely really good player. And it's, it's fascinating to see him growing influence week by week and it kind of not stops. So he'd be one. But the man himself, Patrick Bamford, just, you know, what an incredible season he has. I mean, you talk about our teams performing above expectations, but in terms of players, Patrick Bamford shouldn't be, in my mind, like a Premier League striker. Like, what has happened to him over the course of the last three seasons at Leeds is is nothing short of marvellous. And you almost, I guess there might be a thing where the England cap goes away from him, he'll be one of those players, probably, where. It's- you know, not tested at an international level. But in my mind, he's up there and he should be getting a shot. You only go to that, that match against Villa. It's a Patrick Bamford show. You make loads of chances and you miss a lot of good chances. But he's the one called upon to score those difficult ones. And I know he, in the championship season, it almost seemed like he was missing easy chance after easy chance. And he, he's really delivered in the Premier League. And that's, where, that's what counts really at the end of the day, John. Delivering at the top tier. So if I was a single one person, it would be him. Because Villa did their best to contain him in our last game and he still delivered so yeah fantastic from him
0: I never ask for predictions on this <laughs> podcast and people laugh at it but you know football is a high variance sport so I will ask you how do you think the game will go on Saturday so I
4: hope that it will be a really frustrating game for Leeds where you know you go on info goal and you see massive white dots in the penalty area no goals so <laughs> I'm hoping that's the case I and mean, it's a really panicky one for Villa and it's a scrappy 1-0 win to Villa. I can't see it going that way. I think it'll be difficult. I think it'll be a 2-0 winter to Leeds and I think you'll have a lot of chances. I think you'll probably squander a lot of chances. I think a lot of chances will be blocked, saved, but You go back to our last game, I can't see it not repeating in the same way, especially without someone to kind of frustrate you, like Jack Grealish, someone to at least focus that attention on. So we will need some surprising players to actually really step up and above, deliver those 11 out of 10 performances, 110% almost. Um, Not saying, you know, it's almost like I'm saying that, you know, Leeds are Man City here, but to us they they may as well. But we've got a plan for them in, in almost the same way because best performance against Villa this season probably has to go to Leeds, if not Brighton.
0: Well, James, it's always a pleasure to have you on. What is the best way for our listeners to catch what you're putting out in the football world?
4: I'm really wary of giving out my handle to uh, to Leeds Twitter here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> a fair play, to, uh at JMO Rushton. Um, you can find me speaking Villa Rubbish on um, actually a lot of support for Leeds as well. I know uh, and Blue, which I always get hammered for while you're talking about Bielsa and Leeds again, James. But you can find me on Claret and Blue, which is um, the Birmingham Mail's Aston Villa podcast. So, don't know why you'd come over there, guys, but um, if you want to, I'll be
0: there. Well, it's great to have you on again, mate.
4: Of course. Thank you very much, Sean. Oh,
0: so that was James Rushton of Reach PLC and Claret and Blue Podcast talking about Aston Villa. Tom Woodhead, what did you make of what he had to say?
3: One of the things that really stood out to me was that we talk about our lack of squad depth quite a lot, um, but going on what James was saying, it seems like Villas is either just as bad or possibly even worse. And obviously you can never replace a, replace a player like Jack Grealish. Uh, It's pointless to even try to directly replace him. But um, Al Mohamedy as a backup right back feels very mid noughties. Um, It doesn't feel very 2021. um, And, We were talking about Rafinha possibly playing on the left. I would start Rafinha on the left all day if Al-Mohammadi is playing at right back because I think he wasn't even particularly quick in his pomp. And now that that he's 33, and I can't believe he's only 33, by the way. I would have thought he'd be pushing 40 by now. But um, uh, that could be a real uh, source of chances for us, I think. Tom Alderson, what did you make of that?
2: I actually really enjoyed that uh, from James. I think it was probably my favourite opposition view I've listened to. Um, probably really cheered me up this morning, especially when he was he was like, oh, I'd love it if we got a seventh place finish, doing his best Kevin Keegan impression. Um, the thing I made from that is that there was how many similarities there seemed to be between uh, Villa and Leeds. I think one of the things he was talking about how McGinn and, uh, who's the other one, Douglas Louise are just running to the ground, which, um, and... Uh, what's he called the man Dean Smith not cha- changing the team a lot and then it was like I thought there was like the similarities between Grealish playing and Rafinha um, and then the, but the one bit that really stuck out to me was how the uh, Villa thrive in chaos and I was like that's something that we've seen a lot a lot from Leeds um, in that when games become almost like organised chaos that that's when Leeds are at the best um, the, the Man City game springs to mind um, and I just I wonder it just what you guys thought of that is like how, and especially with the uh, the squad depth as well, like Tom mentioned, like are we actually pretty similar to, to Villa?
0: Both of these are quite interesting insofar as it's quite easy to forget that Villa were like a relegation team last season. I mean, even that team could have been pretty much a, a, a championship side um, and it almost feels as though Villa and, and Leeds have had equal sort of stories this season obviously Villa have had the extra season to bring in more players and so they've they've had a bit more of an elevated trajectory to us but um I I do find it really fascinating what you're both saying about how you know even even despite the fact that Villa have been playing great they are reliant very much on one player and I think the same is true of us as well right we've seen that we 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 lose a couple of players in certain areas and then we're suddenly down to bare bones and, and also we look a lot less exciting than we than we did um how do we feel about the the Villa game? I I watched the Villa game from earlier in the season back, and it was just really fascinating watching that game because there's so many things that I just it almost feels like it's a, an entirely different world. You've got Luke Ayling playing as a right centre back, uh, a left centre back, sorry, in that game, um, and you've got Robin Koch playing, who I just really miss now. Uh, I think, especially having watched Urento play, I just kind of think Koch is clearly the better of the two, and, and we we're really going to miss. Not having that right-sided and right-footed centre-back uh, as well, but yeah, loads of other things as well. We played, we played. I think that was the first time, really, we saw that um, no pivot system or no defensive midfielder system when when Strat was brought off and uh, they brought Shackleton on, and they just did the the thing that we saw against Wolves, where um, they just sort of tag-teamed whoever was going to drop in in the build-up phase and and that was that was quite fun as well but also just a really really open game and uh, I think against Villa without a Grealish I think there's going to be a lot in in Leeds's favour but how are you guys feeling about this Villa game with with all that in mind Tom Woodhead?
3: Grealish being out it's hard to overstate I think how big that is and how much of a difference that's going to make I think what is yet to be decided is is this just going to make them retreat into their shells and and play very negatively and and try and defend? Or are they going to try and actually solve the problem and um, rely on other players more and, and spread that creativity throughout the team? Um, and uh, James didn't seem 100% sure on exactly how that was going to go in the long term. How
2: about you,
0: Tom Alderson? How are you feeling about this game?
2: I'm feeling pretty pretty confident about this game. Um, and that would even, even be the case before Grealish's injury. I think... They, it's, they've been a bit hit and miss last couple of weeks. Villa, like, they, I was pretty, I was pretty high on them, but, um, but they just seem to have gone off the boil a bit recently. And it was something that James said as well. Like, they the, oh, their numbers over the season are pretty good, but there'll be like one game where they won't con, they'll be like shut up shop, won't, won't concede um a lot of chances, but that'll sort of stunt their attacking play. And then other t- times they'll come out and look absolutely electric in tack, but then they'll, they'll win three two instead of one 0 So I, I think, um kind of what what Tom said is we might I think we might see them uh, retreat a bit and go into that that sort of sh- um the sort of shape where they don't concede a lot of chances because that's probably their best chance for this game.
0: Yeah, I think what was interesting about the last game is that Villa had been playing in a sort of 4-2-3-1 a lot with um Ross Barkley playing as a 10 and then pushing up to help out of possession so that Villa were basically a four-four-two, Um And then they came and played against us and they just completely changed it. They played Douglas Luiz as a pivot and both McGinn and Barkley played quite deep um alongside... Uh, the, 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 the pivot in that sense and just sort of weren't really attacking the space in the middle where we had Pascal Strauch. And, um, I know I've annoyed the guys in the podcast a little bit with my, um, tactical, um, uh, re- reliving of that game. But, um, part of the reason I think why, why Bielsa was happy to take Strauch off was, was not simply because of the yellow card that he'd picked up, uh, because that came against him fouling Jack Grealish and he wasn't marking, man marking Jack Grealish. He was man marking, um, Ross Barkley and I think part of the issue for Bielsa was simply that Barkley was sitting in so deep that Pascal Strat was just being pulled really far forward and played fine I think but when you have the option of being able to bring on a more advanced player than a centre-back then I think you just take that option along with the, the yellow card thing so I'm really interested to see what they do this time around do they go with do they go with a double pivot of McGinn and, and Douglas Louise with, with Barkley ahead or do they go back to what they did that time, which was sort of a very flat midfield three, uh, which I think played into our hands. I suspect they'll go with a, a, a double pivot this time, this time, which makes me think that it, we may see Pascal Strauch in that, um, in that defensive midfield um, position again. But um, I guess if that is the case, how would you guys like to see us, us set up? Tom Alderson, how would you set us up if we came out against that 4-2-3-1?
2: I would start a strike there because I'd rather if they do set out in in that um, formation, I'd rather have strike there to deal with Barkley rather than go with click. Um, actually, was click injured, I don't. So we might be forced to play stroke there. Uh, thinking about it, but I'd rather have strike there to deal with Ross Barkley, who's probably going to have more possession as well with uh, with Grealish not playing. So he's, he's he'll see more of the ball. Um, and then we can always do the same again and. Adapt to them sitting deeper if we want to.
3: Yeah, I would uh, play Strike there. I think there are. I mean, if Click's injured, which we don't, I don't think we know for sure that he is, do we? Um, but if 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 Click is injured, I would. The, the 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 only two options you can have, really, I think, are a midfield of Strike, Dallas, and Roberts, or a midfield of Strike, Pablo, and Roberts. I don't really see any other option for the midfield if if Click is injured. So. That almost makes your decision for you, and it also makes your decision to start Lorente again. I think I don't. I don't think there are many other sensible options, and I would probably start it that way and play Alioski, even though I would quite like Dallas solidity at left back. Um, I think. I think I, I struggle to see Pablo lasting a full game and having the kind of impact that that he can have towards the end of games, still um, f- for a full ninety minutes. So, yeah, I, I, I would probably set up like that. There's a few things that we're going
0: to see. I think we're going to see Alioski playing. I think that's fine. He played in the last game. Um, I think we'll see Strauch as a DM. And then, (laughs) yeah, I think that means that we'll have Roberts and and Dallas in the central space. And that means we'll have to play Llorente as a right centre-back, which, yeah, I'm sure that's fine.
3: I I suppose there is the chance that Phillips is fit again. I mean, we, we still don't really know what kind of injury that is or how long he's supposed to be out for, do we?
0: Yeah, that's true. Phillips could come in. Well, let's talk about the wingers then, because I think that's the only thing we've not really talked about. Do you think we'll just see Harrison and um, Rafinha?
3: Yeah, I'd be surprised if Costa gets a start here. But I I think that the more he does well coming off the bench, I think the earlier and more often Bielsa will be willing to turn to him. So I wouldn't be surprised if Harrison's not quite doing it to see Costa at time again.
0: I think it's going to be quite an open game. And I think in a quite open game, Harrison's fine. Um I don't anticipate there being any issues in that in that regard, and I, I, I sort of feel the same way about Alioski as well. I don't particularly mind him playing in this game, especially because I think both of Villa's fullbacks are um, are out at the moment, aren't they? Matt Target and um, Matt Cash. Is that right? I, I think, think Target's right okay. I and... think
3: yeah, I think Target's fit, but uh, okay. Cash is injured.
0: But they they clearly they're clearly probably going for a youngster or El um in in that position, um, so. Either way, I don't think that there's going to be a huge amount of pressure down that right hand side, uh, their right hand side, our left hand side. So I don't feel too bad about Alioski playing there either. Um, does anyone else have anything to add about the about how we'll set up?
2: I think it will uh, be Rafinha on the left, um, like Tom's point about with, with Al Mohamedi there or as a backup. I think it'll be similar to the Southampton game that we'll try and target their weakest fullback. Um, I would. I personally would like to see Costa start, but I, I agree. I, I think it would be Harrison.
0: Do you think it's more likely that Costa will start if Rafinha is going to play on the left? Yeah,
2: I think I think so because I think Costa's probably our second best right winger, um, whereas Harrison is probably our second best left winger. If that makes so,
3: <laughs> no, that makes sense.
2: if you were playing it like purely football manager style you'd put Rafinha on the left and Costa on the right to get your best players in but for continuity I think you'll go with Harrison
0: right let's not talk about who we're worried about on their team just in the interest of time I don't think there's going to be really uh, that much exciting discussion that we've not already had um so let's go straight to who needs to play well for Leeds so Tom Alderson who needs to play well for Leeds if we're to beat Villa
2: I think the centre-backs need to play well because um to sort of combine the two questions about I'm I'm worried about Ollie Watkins and his ability to run into the channels and I think it'll probably be the centre backs that are having to follow him into those areas. Um which we've seen in the p- past um well what well, you can get dribble past but that also creates space for others. So that'll be whoever's filling that void that Watkins leaves um will need to be will need to play well as well.
3: Despite everything that everyone always says about Ross Barkley, which is all absolutely correct, he does also have a lot of talent and he can have the odd game where he looks like a much better player than he typically is. Um, So I I was both surprised and not surprised to hear from James that Ross Barkley hasn't quite lived up to expectations because even though he did look pretty decent in the very early days uh, of his time at Villa, that's kind of what he does, isn't it? He flatters to deceive. But he could... Have one of his, you know, great game in, great game in ten or however often he has a great game. So for that reason, whoever's playing, marking him in defensive midfield, I would like to see them make sure that he does have a bad game. And also, I think, um, I think whoever does play on the right wing, whether it's Harrison or Costa or Rafinha, um, we've talked about Bamford uh, pulling out to the right on the press, and I think the Villa players will subconsciously be more worried about Bamford than teams typically are just because he played so well against them last time so that could potentially open up space for whoever's playing on the right wing as well
0: yeah and then finally how do you think the game's going to pan out Tom Woodhead
3: it's really hard to know because we I don't think we still we still don't really know what kind of team Villa are without Grealish but if I was to hazard a guess I would say that they'll probably play a lot more defensively than last time and they'll sit they'll sit in and uh, look to frustrate us, and they'll look for us to try and break them down. So it'll be a m- more of a sort of uh, championship type game, I guess, than uh, than we've been used to recently, apart from maybe against Wolves.
2: Yeah, I agree with Tom. I, f- I think they'll s- try and uh, restrict the- our chances really. Um, and but I, f- I think, which even if they do come out and try and attack us a bit more, I think both ways suit us better. Um, and so I'm pretty pretty comfortable uh, going into this game.
0: Well, that's the end of the podcast. (laughs) It's a real whistle-stop tour of the Southampton game and the preview of the Villa game. If you do like listening to our stuff, then you're in luck. There's more of it. You can go to our Patreon channel at www.patreon.com forward slash allstatsonwe and pick up a load of bonus material over there. But as for now, we'll be back on Sunday, I think, with a review of the Villa game. Until then, all there is for me to do is to say thank you, Tom. Thank you. And thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. And we'll see you on the flip side.